Chapter 1. Then let's pray. Our Lord God, again, we commend our hearts and our minds to you that we might be filled, our minds might be filled with your word and our hearts would be overflowing with love for you that we might show that love by obedience to the word, by following you, by, by seeking every opportunity that, that you have providentially laid before us to serve you, to witness for you, to, to speak for you and your, for your honor and for your glory. Again, teach us during this time Admonish, encourage, strengthen. You know where each of us are in our lives. We would pray, Lord God, that uh, you, would, you would move us that much closer to where you would have us to be because we all need to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Success, prosperity, two words that every single person wants to be able to experience in their lives. But the question arises, how do you do it? And, and even when you start to think about it, what is it? What is success? What is prosperity? How do you measure it? How can you know when, this, when you've obtained it? Well, the uh, health and wealth and fame group of professing Christians would not find that a difficult question to, to answer. Why, of, of course, uh, Health, and, and uh, it's to be happy, to be healthy, to have all the money that you want, and God at your beck and call to produce a miracle whenever you ask. Right? Well, that would, such would be great. But as I, as I listen to that whole message and think about it, it sort of runs afoul to uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. When you, when you read through that passage, the, the churches that God commends most were the poorest, were the ones who suffered the most, the ones who strove against sin. The one that he condemned the strongest, Laodicea, was the richest. They had the most. They had everything that they could want. Or I should say everything that they focused their hearts on. And God was sick of them. But maybe a more important question 
is how do we, as Christians, attain success and prosperity? How is it done? Particularly when measured by God's standards. How do we do it? How do we go about it? I mean, is there anybody here who doesn't want success or prosperity? Who here does not want to hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant? That would be a pretty good measure of success in the Christian life. But at that point, there's no going back. There's no changing our lives. Well, God lays down some pretty important principles for attaining this here in Joshua chapter 1. In the commissioning of Joshua... So we want to start in verse 1 and and look at the uh, circumstances, and uh, we'll continue to to go through here. Um, Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid. Okay, here's here's the circumstances that, that are that are surrounding this whole thing. If you go back a few pages into Deuteronomy chapter 34, you see that it records the death of Moses and how the people mourned for him. And that's how it should be. I mean, Moses was a great servant of the Lord, doing everything that he knew to do, following what the Lord told him to do. It also, Deuteronomy also records how Joshua was prepared to take over. The Lord had told Moses, you're not going to take the people into the land. I mean, you, you had your opportunity and you blew it. When I told you to speak to the rock, you, you hit it with your stick. And you ruined a picture of what I am trying to do. The first time the people needed water, the Lord told Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. The second time the people needed water, the Lord told Moses, speak to the rock. which is a picture of Christ. The rock is Christ. The first time we need the water of the grace of God, we we look to the smitten rock of Jesus Christ, who is smitten by the wrath of God. But from there on out, whenever we need the refreshing, flowing waters of grace in the Holy Spirit, we speak to him. That's what the Lord wanted to set up, and that's what Moses blew, be that as it may. 
He wasn't going to lead the people into the promised land, but Joshua was. So Joshua and the people are mourning. And at some point, well, let me back up a little bit. There is a key element here that isn't very evident in the text, but it's vital. It's vital to the circumstances surrounding this whole incident. And it's important that we not miss it. For the first time in human history, a written revelation from God exists. Moses, during his ministry, compiled the book of Genesis and wrote the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Question, did Moses write about his own death and then it happened to him? Or did somebody write it after his death? That's another question to ask when we get up there. But nevertheless, this is the first time in human history that a written revelation exists. There were references in Deuteronomy to itself. There's also some evidence that manuscripts from the uh, antediluvian patriarchs existed, and that's uh, the men who lived before the flood, and that's what Moses compiled the, the book of Genesis from, because after all, the book of Genesis had occurred before, all the events of Genesis occurred before Moses was born, so he had to find out about it somehow. And there is some evidence to support that manuscripts existed. But at any rate, here Joshua has a copy of what God providentially had Moses write. Now with Moses off the scene and the people having properly mourned for him and having God having providentially provided his word to his people, now it was time to move. That's where verse 2 starts. He says, Moses, the Lord is speaking here, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all those people get ready to cross the, the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give you to the Israelites. Okay? There's actually two specific verbs here. God is particularly speaking to Joshua. And the two verbs are actually masculine singular verbs. In other words, you, Moses, excuse me, Joshua, you get up, get moving. That's actually what, what uh, the Lord is 
directly speaking to Joshua. The opportunity to serve is now laid open before you. Now what are you going to do about it? I'm telling you, Joshua, move. This is something very important. It's something that I've repeated over and over again, first to myself, and I tried to instill this principle into my children. I don't know how well I've been on, but... If you have the ability to do something, and Joshua was prepared all this time because he was Moses' particular servant. He had shown his faithfulness to the Lord when the, when the 12 spies went out to spy out Canaan. He was, he was one of the two that was consistent, that was following what the Lord wanted. If you have the ability to do something, and you have the opportunity to do something, then you have the responsibility to do something. The ability to do something and the opportunity to do something renders the responsibility to do something. And I keep telling myself that over and over and over again. But that's what Moses is saying, or that's what the Lord is saying to Joshua right here. Joshua, you've been prepared and now Moses is off the scene. You are the guy in charge. Get up and get moving. Now we're going to see from time to through this message a lot of the par there are a lot of parallels between the commissioning of Joshua and the Great Commission. There are some significant differences, too, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on that. That will be your homework assignment. Meditate on the two of them and compare both the similarities between the commissioning of Joshua and the Great Commission and the differences, and some of the differences are very instructive to us. But one thing remains very, very clear. Nobody can do the will of God while doing nothing, while sitting in safety. And all too often, we construct our safety zones around us. Think about what was happening here with Israel. Israel, if you look on the map, and we don't have a map here, but think about Israel was about 10 miles from Jericho in a, in a little area called Shittim. And across the Jordan River, there's about, Jericho's about five miles to the, to the west of the Jordan, and Shittim is about five miles to the east of Jordan. Relatively safe from the people that would be opposing them. And when we construct our, our various forms, safety nets, so to speak, our comfort zones, 
We go through our day in and day out lives not speaking about the Lord, not witnessing to somebody, not taking the, the opportunity to, to speak to that, our coworker or our friend or our neighbor, not showing, not going out of our way to show love or hospitality to somebody, hearing the, the opportunities in the church here to serve and not, not getting out of our, our uh, safety zones, our comfort zones. We'll never be able to serve the Lord that way. We just go about our business in relative ease and safety. But, just as Joshua, I should say, just as the Lord expected Joshua to obey his commission and lead Israel over the, over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, where they were guaranteed to become uncomfortable, to fight, to contend with people who would oppose them, so are we. After all, it's a pretty, pretty uh, difficult thing. One of, the, one of the areas where I disagree with our, our old hymns is the idea that crossing the Jordan is paramount to death. Well, I think that parallel breaks down. Because I don't want to have to fight when I'm in heaven. I don't have to fight sin. I don't have to... That's the land of peace. That's the... Crossing the Jordan is really, in my estimation, of a figure of repentance from a wasted life. Because what, was, what happened... Why was Israel out in the wilderness for 40 years? Because they refused to follow the Lord's direction. Now, the Lord was very gracious during that 40 years. <clears throat> he provided food for them, everything that they ever wanted manna, manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna at supper time. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothing didn't wear out. The Lord provided everything that they could possibly need on the longest funeral march in recorded history. Until that all, that entire generation that refused to obey the Lord died. Now they are faced with the same decision that they were faced with before. Are you ready to follow what the Lord wants you to do? As I said, just as God expected Joshua to obey his commission and to lead Israel over the Jordan. 
so are we expected to obey his commission. And just like Israel could expect opposition, discomfort, difficulties, the Lord not providing manna every day, the Lord allowing their shoes to wear out and their clothes to wear out, so we can expect the same kind of treatment from those who hate the Lord and hate his word. We can expect to get uncomfortable. We can expect people to oppose us. But does that mean we don't go? It means we go forward knowing full well, okay, Lord, there's going to be plenty of times when I'm going to need you. Look at verses 3 and 4. On, on, on whose authority are they going forward? I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Now stop and think about that. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said to Moses. What's he saying? Again, think of those words. Every place where you walk, I've already given it to you. Not only does that show God's providence, but it also shows whose authority he, they're going forward to, to this battle. Many people object to the Old Testament saying that the, the God of the Old Testament was a warlike, mean, cruel, hateful God. Whereas the God of the New Testament is loving and kind. Well, there's much we could say about that. But those who make such statements forget a number of things. First of all, God has always providentially used war to bring judgment against a sinful people. When you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, and the Lord is speaking to Abraham and saying what's going to happen to Abraham and to his descendants, the Lord told Abraham, no, you're, you're not going to stay here and remain in this land and grow and, and, and take over the land that way. No, your descendants are going to go down into Egypt and they're going to stay there for 400 years and then they're going to come back to this land. And he says a very interesting statement in verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, the people around, around you, Abraham, are, <coughs> excuse me, wicked people. They're sinful, but <coughs> their time is not up yet. Their iniquity is not complete. 
There will come a time when the judgment of God will fall on a sinful people. <clears throat> that judgment was about to fall. 470 years later, after the Lord... Thank you, Hans. After the Lord spoke those words to Abraham, that judgment was about to fall. And he was using a conquering group of people, Israel, to judge the sinful people. What happened another 490 years later? Another group of conquering nations came and destroyed Israel for their sins. Another thing to remember about this whole issue. Paul reminds us in Acts chapter 17 verse 26. That it is the Lord God who owns everything. What did he say? I am giving you this, this land. I'm giving it to Israel. What, who has the authority to give land? The one who owns it. Who owns the land? Was it the Amorites? Was it the various other uh, Canaanite tribes? They might be occupying it, but they don't own it. Paul tells us that it is the Lord who has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. God in his providence has set the boundaries of every nation, when they will live there, when they will no longer live there. It is therefore God's authority that put Israel into the land, and God is in the so enough sovereign control of the activities of his people to ensure that they do not step beyond the boundaries that he has decided. That's why he goes on, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west, everything that, that I've given you, these are going to be your boundaries. <clears throat> God has given us a commission as well. What's our commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. On the same authority that he gave Israel the promised land, he tells us, with that same authority, go and preach the gospel. Don't let anybody ever intimidate you 
that would say something like, what right do you have to force your religion on me? It's the Lord God of heaven that gives me that right, who gives me that responsibility. We preach the gospel, we teach the word, because the Lord God of heaven commanded us to do so. It's his authority, not ours. But you know, there's a promise. There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Verse 5. Now this is a marvelous promise, and it must have been a tremendous encouragement to Joshua. Stop and think about this. If Joshua was, say, in his mid-40s or early 50s when he went to spy out the land in Canaan, he was 85 to 90 at this point. And he knew what war was about. He knew he had seen it before. And he is about to embark on seven years of hand-to-hand combat. Combat with, with swords, knives, clubs, stones. To think about this a little further... What cultural implements did Israel have at this time? Even after they were established in the the land, they didn't have any foundries. They didn't have any industry. They had to go down to the Philistines to get all their farm implements sharpened. They weren't equipped with chariots and, and all the rest of the modern warfare equipment of that day. What chance did they have of of overrunning fortified cities, city-states, that would have such equipment? Those cities didn't stand a chance. Humanly speaking, no. Because God said, I will never fail you. Every place where your foot goes, I've already given it to you. No one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And remember, Joshua had to do this at at 90 plus years old and fight with men less than half his age. But notice what the Lord does not say and what the Lord says. The Lord says, the Lord does not say, you will not fail. The Lord says, I will never fail you. And that's a huge difference. Because this promise doesn't mean 
Joshua wasn't going to get hurt. Joshua wasn't going to, to fail and falter sometimes. Remember what happened at Ai. <coughs> but it does mean that everything that the Lord had determined to do was going to happen. Nothing that he had determined uh, to, to take place was ever going to falter. Again, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Vaguely ring familiar? I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we're serving the Lord, we can be guaranteed His presence, His strength. When we step out in faith and obedience, we step into a mighty stream. I, I always picture this. I always think of behind our house where we built is the Conodiguanic Creek. And there are places where the current can get pretty strong in that creek. And, but I always think about stepping into it and feeling the current pushing me. When we step out into the will of God, we step into a stream. And that stream started in eternity past. And we get into the flow of the will of God, how it twists and turns back and forth. And as we follow that stream, He takes us to where exactly He has determined it would go. And again, he will get the glory for himself. We get the, the privilege of being called the servants of God. Sometimes you know, we will falter, we will make mistakes, we will get tongue-tied, get embarrassed, say things we ought not to say, like Galen mentioned before. And then have to ask forgiveness. Those things happen because we are at best imperfect servants of God. But we are earthen vessels. But what's the glory is inside? The glory of the Lord is within the earthen vessel. Let's read from verses 6 through 8. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. 
Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it from the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate in it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. The first thing to notice is the repetition of the admonition. To be strong and courageous. Three times in the space of four verses, the Lord repeats that to Joshua. Do you think he's trying to communicate a message? Do you think he's trying to tell something to Joshua? As we saw previously, Joshua would be leading Israel to war. <coughs> war is never a pretty thing. And particularly, war that is fought hand to hand. It is very ugly. And Moses or no, Joshua is going to lead people, as we said, into battle. And he himself would be engaged in fighting men half his age, a third of his age. He was to be strong and courageous. And these are, quali these are qualities that every soldier must exhibit constantly including the soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, what did Paul tell Timothy? Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Put up with the hardships. Put up with the difficulties. Endure it. Because it's not going to be fun. There are times when it's much more lighthearted. There are times when when it's going to be difficult. But in order to do that, what was Joshua to focus his mind and his heart on? And this is where we really get into the key issue. When you focus solely on your duties and responsibilities... You too easily become narrow, grim, impatient with others, and even arrogant when somebody fails to keep the same standard that you do. When you focus on the enemy, or the task at hand, or the circumstances surrounding you, sort of like Peter stepping out onto the lake, and he saw the storms boisterous around them. When you look at those circumstances, when you look at that, the enemy, when you look at what you're responsible to do, you very soon become overwhelmed at the enormity of what is expected of you. If you focus on how others fight the battle, sooner or later... 
Even the best examples will disappoint you because we're all humans. But what did God tell Joshua to focus his mind on? God didn't tell Joshua to attend war college to learn better tactics. He didn't tell Joshua to learn sociology to better understand his enemies. He didn't tell him to go to engineering school to build better weapons of war. What did he tell him? Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That's why it's, I pointed out about the fact that the word of God in written form now exists for the first time in human history. <coughs> he has a revelation that he can refer to, that he can meditate on, that he can focus his mind and his thoughts on. The word of God was to be the focus of his mind and his heart. The revelation that never before this moment in time existed in written form was now available to, his to God's people. And since that time, God has held his people accountable for reading, for meditating, for studying, for learning the word of God. We all have that responsibility, moment by moment, day by day in our lives. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Repeat it over and over and over and over and over. In my daily reading this year, I've been impressed by how often the Lord indicts his people for not doing it. Whenever the, the people falter, normally somewhere in that message that the prophet is making is, you haven't done the word of God. You haven't obeyed it. But again, the meditation is only the necessary groundwork. What does the next phrase in verse 8 say? This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Thou, thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written. What good is knowing the word of God if we never follow it? As a matter of fact, if we know the word of God and we choose not to follow the word of God, we incur greater condemnation on ourselves. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Oh, there's a good way to avoid it then. Then I'll just not study it and then I won't be held accountable, right? Well, if that's true, 
then you'll never realize why we started this message in the beginning. How do you get prosperity and success? You'll never realize those two things in the Christian life without obedience to the Word of God. Because once we do obey, what's the last phrase in verse 8 say? For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. When we know the truth of the word of God and seek to obey it with a pure heart, a heart of love for God, then and only then will God make our way prosperous and successful. We obviously cannot obey what we do not know. So study the word of God is the first step. Yet we must be careful how we obey. And this is always a struggle because every single one of us are, just, are nothing but a bag of mixed motives. When we do what the word says because we want to appear spiritual or superior to that person over there, that's a stench in God's nostrils. That's not obedience. That's, that's the Pharisee standing in the temple praying with himself, saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy over here because I do this and I do that and I do the other thing and I have all these, these notches on my witnessing belt. And I'm, you're so lucky to have me, God. I'm so wonderful for you. But it's all too easy a thing to begin to compare ourselves with others and thus to fail even when we're doing what we should be doing. To to be serving and then get jealous or angry because somebody else isn't doing what we're doing. That's failure in and of itself. What did the Lord Jesus tell Peter when, when he pointed to John? He said, what about that man? What would you have him do? What did the Lord say? What is that to, to you? Follow thou me. Don't worry about what my plan is for him or for her or for that person over there. Set your heart on me. Set your heart on my word and follow it. I'll deal with that person over there. You follow me. When we focus on obeying what we know is written in the word, because we love God and want him to be glorified in all things, the first thing is all the obstacles that, has, that God has providentially set in our way 
will be brought down. We can be guaranteed that nothing God has called us to do will fail. We will be successful. May not be exactly defined the way we defined it in our heads, but what God has determined we would do will come to pass. And then the true prosperity of being content with such things as God provides will be displayed in our lives. What did Paul say in Philippians 4.11? I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed to be full and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I can, whether God chooses to provide tons of money for me or throws me into prison, it doesn't matter to me. That is prosperity. Not having concern about outside circumstances, but the knowledge I've done God wanted me to do. That is the true prosperity. Again, the author of Hebrews, be content with such things as ye have, for it is written, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If he chooses to abase us, or cause us to abound, it won't matter. He is with us, and that's better than anything this world can afford. And we'd only end up discontent if God doesn't get the glory. And I hope someday to be able to really exhibit that in my life. Lessons for our lives. Number one, nobody can do the will of God while doing nothing. Sitting comfortably, avoiding serving God's people, avoiding sinners... can't do a will of God like that. There are plenty of opportunities to begin serving. How many times have we asked for people to work in a nursery, people who can, can teach Sunday school? Plenty of opportunities to serve, even in this church. We're all surrounded daily by people who need to hear the gospel. By Christians who could be encouraged building up one another in the most holy faith. That's serving the Lord. Number two, remember God is the owner of all things. He is the ultimate authority in all things. No one can prevent us from witnessing or following the commands of God 
that he has plainly given to us. It is, we go forward on his authority. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our authority. The Lord God said it. What more authority do we need? And if anybody questions that authority, well, that's his problem, really. Number three, just as he promised Joshua that he would never fail him, so Jesus has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Have you ever had those times when you just kind of wonder about that? Lord, where are you? Those single footprints in the sand days? Lord, where are you? We all have. Sometimes it does take quite a measure of faith to know and exercise this verse. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not fail you. It is impossible for God to fail. If we're following his will, there's nothing. And who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, the, yea, rather, that is risen again. Number three, or four. On what do you focus your mind in life? Do you purpose to learn and follow the word? If so, that's when you can expect a blessing. If not, sort of like, well... Quite often, the, the word is pictured as milk for the baby. What would you do if you had a baby that didn't want to eat? That baby would be very sick at best, if not stillborn. What would you do if a professing Christian doesn't care about reading and learning the word of God? That's his lifeline. That's, that's her milk. That's how we grow. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Take the opportunity to this week to memorize Romans 8.1. It's one of the most marvelous verses of the entire Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. What a marvelous verse. Particularly after it follows, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then number five. Jesus has promised to forever be with his children. 
But that does not apply to everybody. If you've never trusted in, in the salvation from sin that Christ alone provides, praise the Lord for Ed's father-in-law. The Lord brought him to that point where he saw his need of salvation. All his self-support, all his self-confidence melted into nothing. When you see the one you love and you're helpless to help them, what can you do? Turn to the Lord. If you've never done that, if you've never sought the Lord and his salvation, let this be your day. Let's pray.